Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 96, being recorded on Thursday, August 3rd, 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, you're uh, you're at home. The rare, this, I think this is the first week this year you've, you've been at home, so that, that's uh, pretty exciting. I am. For those of you that are listening, this would be a good time to... Uh, uh, up your investment in Chicago area Starbucks if you, if it's possible to individually invest in a Starbucks branch. Cool. Well, we um, we wanted to start off at the top of the show and uh, congratulate one of our friends of the show, Peter Cobb. He was our first guest, uh, and he's the founder of eBags. And he has just it was announced today that he is joining the board of DSW. So, congrats to Peter. Yeah, that's super exciting. I. Uh, I had an unconfirmed report that his primary qualification for that job was that he was the inaugural guest on the Jason and Scott show. Jason and Scott show. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I think it's uh, it's definitely a resume builder. We'll have to see who the second guest was and see if they rise to fame and fortune as well. As well, exactly. Uh, Scott, I feel like we didn't get to talk about it, and it may have happened two weeks ago, um, but they. Uh, revealed all the information about the new Tesla. And if I'm remembering right, uh, you, you have an option to buy one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. The, uh, actually the day they announced it, I put in two pre-orders. So I was going to, um, use one and give away, or, uh, if I couldn't find someone that wanted, I was going to sell the second one. Um, and, uh, it's exciting because they did just kind of update the website and show when they're going to be delivered. And I find it hard to believe, so I'm taking this with a grain of salt, but it shows that both of mine would be, one is, they give you a three-month window, and one is October, November, December, and the other one is November, December, January of uh, 17 and 18. So um, I doubt that I will actually be that early, but it's kind of fun to think like it could be possible. Wow. Are you going to have time to expand your garage in time? Uh, I don't know. We will see. That you talk about first world problems, that is definitely a first world problem. Uh, that I don't know if I ever told you this, but that turned out uh, to be my inadvertent brush with greatness. Do you did you follow that? There was this slight controversy. Someone asked Elon Musk if he was going to get the very first one, and he he tweeted something about how no, we have a strict policy that whoever fa- pays the full fare gets the first one, and so that belongs to one of our investors who subsequently gave me the rights for my birthday. Did you, ah. did you see that story at all? I did not. No, I missed it. Uh, yeah. So it was like a internet thing for a day. And a lot of people were questioning the veracity of that policy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it became a little controversial and stuff. But what was funny about that is uh, the investor, uh, his name is Ira Ironprice. And that, that sounded really familiar to me. Uh, It turned out he was an intern for a VC firm that was one of the investors in one of the very first companies I was a principal for. And uh, so I got to work with Ira like the week he graduated from uh, Stanford Business School. And uh, now he's giving Teslas to Elon Musk. Nice. You should call him up and get on the list. 
Yeah, I don't feel like I would want to want to impose. Yeah. Uh, but I will share the story on the podcast for partial credit. Cool. Absolutely. I think it counts. Yeah, that is definitely a Forrest Gump kind of moment there. So on, uh, let's jump into it. On this week's show, we're going to cover some news from the week. And uh, last week we had so many listener questions. Uh, we were swimming in listener questions. We're going to kind of uh, swing back around at the back half of the show and pick up some that we were not able to get to. So we apologize to those listeners uh, that were waited on listening with bated breath last episode. We will do everything we can to get to them all this week. So let's kick it off. It wouldn't be a Jason Scott show without some Amazon news. So here we go. Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Yeah, so the, the first thing is uh, I had uh, uh, several colleagues send me pictures this week. Uh, from their Amazon app, where uh, in the the order tracking, uh, Amazon was uploading photos of the Amazon box being left at the customer's doorstep. Yeah, the um, you tagged me in one of those tweets, and I logged into my account one morning and had like sixty notifications. And I was like, "What the heck?" The only time that ever happens to me is if uh, Mark Andreessen has stopped tweeting, but when he was, he retweeted a couple of my things, and I would wake up and have like. 500 new followers. So it felt like that. It was a very exciting morning for me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. And if you, I was kind of thinking through the logic there. And so obviously one of the standard carriers is not going to do that. So, um, so USPS, uh, so, so Amazon, uh, the bulk of prime goes through UPS and then they leverage USPS, uh, and then they do a little bit of FedEx. So none of those three carriers would do it. Um, but they do have this carrier network called Flex that not many people know about. And this started when they launched Prime Now. It's an Uber rush type service. So it uses 1099 drivers and a very similar Uber-like system, but for packages instead of people. And they developed this for Prime Now. So all the Prime Now products are delivered that way. And then what we're starting to see is more and more packages um, out of the fulfillment centers. They're, they're running some algorithm that essentially kind of uses that same driver network. And uh, I believe if people are close enough or the economics work out that it's, um, you know, uh, cost effective compared to the other options, then they will get flex drivers to actually go to a fulfillment center and deliver a package. So it looked a lot like that. My guess was that that's what those package pictures were is the flex drivers, like an Uber driver. Um, they have a very, um, you know, a very specific Amazon app that they download to be a flex driver. Um, and in there they can scan packages and take pictures. So it seems like that's the logical place where that would be happening. Yeah. And I, I think uh, I have partial confirmation that you're right. Uh, the first person to send me that picture was a, a coworker of mine, Jeremy Lockhorn, and he has uh, one of the ring doorbells. So uh, after you, you posited that theory that it probably wasn't a UPS driver, uh, Jeremy pulled the video from his ring doorbell and, uh, sure enough, it was a, a woman in a tank top that looked like a 1099 employee, uh, yeah. dro- uh, dropping off that, that, uh, the box at the door, um, here in Chicago, because we're, we're lucky enough to be really close to some fulfillment centers. We get a lot of same day delivery using those flex drivers from the actual fulfillment center in Indiana. 
And so it's my my building. I have uh, 12 neighbors It's uh, in our condo building. It's pretty funny. We get two waves of Amazon packages a day. Like our UPS guy comes at about one, and the lobby fills up with Amazon packages. And then the, the fulfillment center delivers all the same-day deliveries at about 9 p.m., and our, and our lobby refills up with Amazon boxes every night. Wow. You're just like an Amazon – center there yeah uh there's a lot of good trend spotting uh by just looking at what my neighbors order i will say i'm somewhat impressed by my neighbors they they have a a, um some pretty eclectic e-commerce shopping which which always makes me happy um but i think people have have ever tried the look in the box feature to see what they they're ordering i have it as you probably know it only works with your own orders yeah um which means i can never see anything because it's my boxes are always from my wife Ah. So they should have a family family plan for that somehow. Hmm. Um, everyone on the same Prime account, you should be able to see or something. Uh, but I, I think presumably the reason they're taking those pictures is to reduce fraud and um, you know uh, false claims that packages weren't delivered. That seems like the the primary reason. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, there are some of the on-demand economy companies make it part of their user experience to kind of show the delivery. Um, one of the one of the new generation flower companies called Urban Stems they they actually film a little video of the product being delivered and they send it to the sender as kind of a nice little way to to see. Um, it's not as kind of boring as a package sitting on a, a porch. Though. Yeah, it, it makes <laughs> it makes the most sense in the world. And you think about it, it's it's kind of sad that the big flower companies can't do that because you literally like you never know what the product look like looks like that you purchased yeah absolutely yeah a couple of other kind of quick hit lightning round uh, items on amazon news these are all kind of in the area of fulfillment uh so amazon has long been rumored to be opening in australia um there was kind of definitive news that they have located a warehouse so that's interesting so their first fulfillment center in australia has been located um, they've done a lot of PR around hiring for the holidays and they, they did a job fair this week where they had, uh, 50,000 folks they were hiring. And, uh, most of the articles I saw actually were negative because there were so many people at these events. The lines literally went on for, you know, people were reporting waiting in the lines for eight, nine hours. Um, it was interesting. The financial press was kind of surprised because if you look at the um, data that comes out from the government, it looks like we're at effectively, you know, neutral employment where almost everyone has it. We have very low unemployment right now. But then when you go to these events that they're hiring, um, you know, kind of $10, $15 an hour kind of folks, there are still a lot of people out there looking for work and, and they really would like to work on uh, Amazon Fulfillment Center. So that, that was really interesting. And Amazon got a lot of, there's a ton of press around it. I, a lot of it was negative, not not really against Amazon, just the lines seem to be very long. Um, and the last one is we, we covered Amazon's Q2 earnings last podcast, but, uh, you know, after we recorded, some news came out that the CFO essentially said uh, one of the reasons there was a lot of expenses kind of in the forward projections was that uh, 80% of the fulfillment centers that are going to open this year uh, will be in the back half, essentially. And Amazon doesn't really open fulfillment centers in November, December. So back half essentially means July, August, September, October. So you know, when I, when I do the math on that, it's kind of crazy. It makes it seem like they're going to open 15 to 20 fulfillment centers, and it kind of comes out on the high side of that. So that's going to be something I'll be keeping a really close eye on. It kind of 
the the reading the tea leaves there made me feel like there are a lot of fulfillment centers coming uh, in the next three or four months. Yeah, and that feels like that's now going to just be an annual cycle for Amazon. So it's it's funny if you're an investor, you should almost like you know grow to expect Q3 to be a a low profit quarter as they they have these huge expenses for opening these things. Uh, another interesting news bit that we didn't get to cover earlier is uh, Sears' announcement that uh, they would now be selling Kenmore appliances on Amazon. And that uh, was interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, in recent uh, months, we've talked about Honest, who had previously said they would never sell on Amazon, selling on Amazon. We talked about Nike that said Amazon wasn't right for their brand, you know, is at least dabbling um, with some SKUs on Amazon. Uh, you know, now we see Kenmore, which is one of the, you know, few remaining valuable properties that Sears owns, uh, m- moving to Amazon. Uh, and every time one of those things happened, like it had a derogatory effect on the rest of the industry. And sure enough, the other appliance retailer stock went down when uh, Amazon announced that they were selling Kenmore. So, you know, I think we're, we're seeing this new trend that... Uh, that Amazon can, you know, at least temporarily, like materially affect the valuation of all their competitors just by issuing a press release, which is pretty interesting. Um, and one other thing that was interesting about this Kenmore deal that I didn't see as much coverage on, but um, Kenmore also announced that they would be integrating uh, the Alexa in a bunch of their appliances. And so that's a, you know, another controversial one. You know, a lot of retailers aren't aren't big on. Alexa being the default uh, artificial agent in all these kitchen appliances because it obviously is giving Amazon this huge leg up, and uh, you know now for Kenmore to do it is a uh, is pretty big blow. Yeah, I, th- I think it's you know um, I've had a lot of discussions about this with colleagues, and, and I kind of take it to this pretty extreme where I think Sears could actually do better if they would shut down. A lot, you know, all but maybe I don't know, fifty stores or something, and sell the real estate, and then become a house of brands that sell other places online. Not only Amazon, but definitely Amazon. Uh, good example is I think a really big mistake they made is they sold Craftsman for something like nine hundred million dollars to I think a private equity firm, no, to Black and Decker. And you know, I, I think if they had sold Craftsman on Amazon, that would have been. I, you know, I, that line has got to be, I don't know what its revenue is, but it's got to be a billion dollar a year line. It's it's still quite popular out there with, with tool folks. So so it's interesting. I don't know if the signal is a change of that kind of thinking or if it's a last ditch effort before they sell it or I, I don't know. But it, it just to me, it feels like if you could have kept Craftsman, keep Kenmore, they've got a couple other brands, sell the stores and use the proceeds to go buy more brands in, you know, kind of a family of, of brands there. Uh, that may be a better future for Sears than kind of like what looks like this slow death that they've embarked on. Yeah, no, I, I certainly think you're right. I suspect that some of the valuable brands they've had to sell have been painful. And I think they probably had to sell them because the stores are such a money sink that they just needed the cash. And, you know, I, I think, you know, financial hardship makes you make some some uh, short sighted decisions, and and uh, Craftsman might be a perfect example of that. Yeah. Um, another quick logistics one: um, Amazon announced a whole new product called the Hub, um, and this is a physical 
locker. It's a lot like Amazon lockers um, and it even looks kind of like it. But what's different is it's meant to go into residential locations. So the use case they talk a lot about is an apartment building or like your building uh, where you are, Jason. Uh, you know, it sounds like maybe you have a doorman, so the packages are secure, but pretend you didn't have a doorman. Uh, then you would uh, put this hub there and uh, you would receive packages and put returns in there and that kind of thing, just like an Amazon locker. The difference is it now has a new brand called The Hub. And if you go to thehub.amazon.com, you'll see a picture of one of these. Um, and the other really interesting difference uh, is it can be used by third parties. So a FedEx delivery person could come in and they enter a code. Um, there's a sequence that they, they can enter on the screen and say, I have a delivery for Jason Goldberg, and it would open a little door, and then it would know, okay, Jason lives in apartment uh, 8C, and it would, you know, uh, some it would message you, um, and I think you can set up uh, as a resident, you can log into. There's some software you can log into and, and set some preferences of how you want to be communicated with. So you would get a text message that would say, Jason, you've got a package from FedEx tracking number X in the hub, and then you would go get it and um, – and uh, you could even uh, put packages in there and summon UPS, let's say, for a pickup kind of a thing. So it's pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of companies are working on these things. And, and just Amazon already is, is kind of – this is like their fifth-generation attempt at this. And it was interesting to see them take a more open approach versus kind of the closed public area Amazon locker. Yeah, and it, I mean it's, it feels really smart. You You go to like the grocery stores that, you know, do home delivery through a bunch of these services – and what you now see is a bunch of Amazon lockers uh, for grocery delivery next to a bunch of Instacart lockers for grocery delivery next to, you know, potentially some third service. And it's taking up a ton of real estate and it, it just doesn't seem feasible. And so, you know, you you scale that to these home buildings and it's not likely that FedEx, UPS and Amazon are all going to get get uh, locker space uh, in the lobbies of these buildings. So it's it's pretty smart of Amazon to say, hey, we'll. We'll do the land grab. We'll get the space because we'll let you use it for everything. Um, and I do also, you know, obviously one of the things this is addressing is just as, as you know, we're being disrupted by e-commerce and so many of us are getting so many packages at home, one of the real problems that's coming up is package theft. And we're seeing all kinds of uh, interesting and goofy contraptions being invented to, to sort of mitigate that. But the, these lockers are obviously... Uh, one of the best tools. So, so I, I suspect they'll get some success with that. The next news item I saw um, uh, got some seller, Amazon sellers in a little bit of a kerfuffle. Um, Amazon sent out a letter changing their, their uh, returns policy for 3P sellers. Um, and I'll, I'll uh, just read a little bit of the announcement uh, dear seller, Amazon is simplifying the returns process on items fulfilled by sellers. Starting October uh, 2nd, 2017, returns of items that you fulfill and that fall within Amazon returns policy will automatically be authorized. Customers will be able to print a prepaid return shipping label via the online return center instantly. Um, they, there's another paragraph where they announce another feature, which is uh, we're also introducing returnless refunds, a feature that's highly requested by sellers. If you choose to do so, you will now be able to set rules and automatically issue a refund without requiring an item to be shipped back to you. Sellers have requested this because in many cases it allows you to save on both return shipping and processing costs. Um, so the gist of this is... You're a 3P seller on Amazon. You're not using FBA. 
Um, customer wants to return a product uh, that used to go through a process and the, the seller would have to authorize that return. And now they're just saying, hey, we're forcing all sellers to take returns and no questions asked. Um, and there's a lot of small sellers that are on the forums and on the, the Amazon forums are are really outraged about this because, you know, you know they feel like they're getting getting cheated by by these uh, nefarious buyers that buy stuff and then uh, indiscriminately return it. Um, and I think there was even some confusion. Some sellers thought they'd be forced to use this this uh, returnless refund, um, and that clearly isn't the case. That's really designed for products where you know it's more expensive to ship the product back than it is to just throw it away or something like that. And so you know they're giving that as an option to sellers. But uh, I don't I don't think this is news for. Anyone in FBA, I don't think it's uh, news for any of the big sellers, um, but I, you know, uh, I do think it's uh, an interesting play. I understand the sellers being upset by it, but as a customer, I think it makes a lot of sense what Amazon is doing. Um, it's really confusing and complicated when the the terms of service are different for every product you buy based on who sold it to you, right? So I buy three things; they may have come from three sellers. On Amazon, I typically don't even notice that. And so then if I want to return all three, it's very odd that two of them are, are returned with no question asked and one of them the return is denied. So this seems like a, a step to force more consistency and a more customer-centric approach on Amazon and you know certainly at, at some cost to Amazon sellers, which I, I understand they, they probably don't appreciate. Yeah, yeah, a lot of small sellers view returns as kind of like this battleground and they they dig in and dig their heels and have these stocking fees and all this kind of stuff they, they try to turn it into a profit center and um i think the larger sellers have kind of said look we've the, the, those days of the internet are over that's kind of like 1995 thinking let's you know returns are here to stay just kind of bake it in your model and and that's not going to be the profit center and whatever the cost is you have to kind of put it into your business model and, and go forward you can't just can't have that kind of thing. And I, I agree with you. It, it's, it, uh, you know, level sets the user experience and makes it a lot cleaner, um, than, than kind of the past where you had to kind of go read every seller's return thing and go through the different RMAs and all that stuff. Um, Another Amazon news item uh, is uh, I think one day uh, in the future we'll look back on 2017 and it will be the year of Amazon private label because it seems like a new private label is launching every week right now. So this is, you know, for a long time you had a couple out there um, uh, anchored with Amazon Basics and a couple others, uh, Pinzon and, and Stratford and things of that nature. Uh, and then this year there's been like literally a new one is discovered uh, every month. Um, so this this month's, uh, you know, uh, private label is called the fix and it's prime exclusive. So all these private labels are either prime exclusive or not. This one is a prime exclusive private label, uh, and it's footwear and handbags. So it's got kind of a, um, you know, a very floral, bright kind of a look to it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that does. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I think it, there's uh, some possibility that Amazon, you know, has been the the nemesis of Peter Cobb forever. And so what a coincidence, uh, the day Peter goes to work for a shoe company, Amazon starts selling shoes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I do think it's going to be interesting. Obviously, you know, every industry looks at Amazon and they go, oh, man, they're doing great in all these other industries. But but our category is much more more complicated. And, you know, I suspect a bunch of people at 
Ivera Bradley and Michael Kors and, you know, all, the, all the, these other brands are, you know, waking up this morning and either being being concerned or or not, but but they certainly probably should be based on the success of some of the other Amazon brands that they've been able to build. And I, I just always like to remind everyone, like, we get in the habit of calling these private labels because they're, they're brands that are offered by the retailer. Um, but, you know, my joke is Alexa probably doesn't feel like a private label to the, the product managers for Bluetooth speakers at Sony. Yep. Seems like they're a full-fledged brand. Yeah, and unlike kind of, you know, when I talk to a lot of brands, they kind of say, well, we've competed with private label for a very long time, um, which is true, but it's different because, you know, these are frequently tagged uh, with Amazon Choice. They're designed in such a way to be very, they feel like mature brands. So um, it's not like old Roy dog food where it's like clearly the the Walmart brand or something like that. So uh, there's a couple that are, there's like Wickedly Prime and Amazon Basics, obviously. Uh, but, you know, when they, when they do these apparel ones, um, they slip them in there and... You know, it, it is as a consumer that's not familiar with every brand, it, it is hard to tell. So if you do a search for a, a dress shirt or black dress, you will see, uh, I guarantee there'll be a, a strip of brands up there and two of those are private labels. So it's kind of a, uh, I like to do this. I go into a, uh, like you, I present a lot and I'll go into a presentation and, and pull that page up and say, what's the private label? And <laughs> uh, I, w- I would say almost 100% of the time people, you know, cannot 100% guess it. They'll, they'll, there's one. One that they'll guess, and then the other one they'll, you know, they will miss. So um, I think it's uh, people should take these very seriously, for sure. And think about like what the next likely plays are with all these brands, right? Like Amazon's going to use all their data on selling handbags and footwear across all products to identify the attributes that customers most want. They're going to use the search results and the the non-converting products and figure out where the gaps are in the market. And so they're they're going to be able to use this huge amount of data that they have to dictate you know how how their their product lines evolve, which is a, a potentially big competitive advantage. Now they're going to install cameras in a bunch of people's dressing rooms and take pictures of their outfits. So now they're going to be able to help help uh, know much more so than any other manufacturer um, the exact fashion sense of all their customers and what products they tend to wear and how frequently they tend to use them. So that's going to give them another big advantage over over the traditional brands. And then, you know, of course, they're going to roll all these products into the Amazon wardrobe offering and, and you know, send, send free trials to customers to let them keep them if they want them. Like they're, they're just building so many pieces of a ecosystem here and if you're you know you're a traditional handbag manufacturer or footwear manufacturer that just makes products and tries to sell them you know i I, you know i think you you really need to think about like you're not just competing against another skew you're competing against a whole new ecosystem that that you know in the medium term is likely to change how people shop for these products so that's going to be interesting to watch uh the next news item I had, uh, I'll be honest, I'm not sure what to make of. Um, and you, you had a particularly interesting theory. Uh, Stripe made a uh, press release, and Stripe is a very popular uh, payment gateway, particularly with uh, smaller sellers and marketplaces. Um, and they made an announcement that they were now um, providing an undisclosed uh Provide, uh, conducting transactions for an undisclosed percent of Amazon sales. 
So Amazon is now using Stripe for some of their payment processing. Yeah, this this was a tricky one because it was reported everywhere and it was hard to chase down the the source. And uh, it's in a Bloomberg article. We'll put it in the show notes. And um, it seems like the author saw Amazon's logo on their site. And that was almost kind of the the germ of the whole article. Uh, but it was one of these puff pieces, you know, how they became a unicorn and all that stuff, which is great. Um, but then, you know, it, it is weird because so Stripe is um, – uh, primarily used for mobile payments. And I just got to imagine that core Amazon, uh, which when you think about amp, you know, um, uh, mobile is the, the Amazon app. I, I find it hard to believe they would use Stripe. Um, but the f- interesting thing about Amazon culturally uh, is every team is independent. And so um, the the cost of that is you don't get a lot of reuse sometimes. Now, they force reuse through the, the cloud platform called you know, AWS, uh, which, which is kind of how they solve some of that. But I have seen teams at Amazon just kind of like make their own kind of you know choices for things and do copies of things. Like, for example, when Prime Now launched, it had a whole different – you know, set of product images and taxonomy and things than core Amazon. Uh, and, you know, traditional companies would say, well, why would you do that? That's silly. But Amazon favors speed over over efficiency. So um, so my guess, my first guess was, well, there's a team in Amazon that wanted to move quickly. You know, for some reason, they didn't really want to use Amazon payments per se. So they probably just use Stripe. So then I was kind of thinking, what could that be? Uh, and two ideas I had were, um, so the treasure truck has really started to scale up and you can imagine that that's going to be one of those scenarios where you're going to need to be out there, um, you know, in the field with a point of sale system, Amazon doesn't really have anything quite like that. Uh, and you're going to want to be, you know, having an individual process payments, um, kind of a, a sales rep kind of thing. So that, that kind of struck me as a potential area. And then another one is maybe like some of the Amazon bookstores or something like that. Maybe the, that that kiosk they're using has Stripe embedded, um, and then you know the AWS team is kind of its own rogue thing. So then I was thinking maybe they certainly are processing a lot of credit cards there. Maybe Stripe's used on the B two B side there in some context, um, you know, or maybe there's some other Amazon app I haven't really thought of that's launched in the last year that that used Stripe to as as its payment process. I just find it really hard to believe that core Amazon is using Stripe unless. You know, this is some precursor to an acquisition or that solving some, uh, you know, it could be maybe an international kind of thing. So sometimes, you know, you'll go into some of these markets and the it would be too expensive to add support for payment type X and maybe Stripe already has it. Um, those are kind of the things or maybe um, they wanted Amazon Pay or uh, Apple Pay added to something and you know Apple probably isn't keen on letting Amazon into that so they Stripe gave them kind of an arm's length way to have that Th- those are kind of my my thoughts on this i don't think it's kind of what uh you know they kind of implied in that article yeah i i you know i i think any of those are possible i i agree with you unless it's a precursor to an acquisition. It makes no sense that Amazon would just start using Stripe as kind of a 30-second a primer for people about payments. Like, if you're a small payer, uh, a small seller, and you want to start taking credit cards, you're likely going to pay a 2.9% fee for credit cards. And that's the, the base price that Stripe charges to accept a credit card. The more volume you get, the, the better price you can negotiate. And so if you're a, a huge retailer... 
only 10% of your sales are online. So you're selling, if you're Walmart, you're selling $300, $400 million, billion dollars in stores. You're selling $14 billion online. Um, You want to aggregate all of that sales together to get the absolute lowest credit card fee possible. And at that size, you're actually going to install your own network and have a direct relationship with a bank. If you're a little smaller than them, you're going to use one of these enterprise providers like CyberSource or Chase Payment um, or maybe Braintree. You know, these are all really common with the big enterprise sellers. And where Stripe has really fit is for smaller sellers and newer sellers. Because what what Stripe uniquely did is Stripe said, hey, we're not going to try to offer features that, that appeal to the CFO making the decision what service they're going to use, we're going to offer features that appeal to the developer deciding what service to integrate. And so they they have much better APIs and documentation and implementation guides. And, you know, if you're a small startup and you want to add payment processing, million times easier to implement Stripe than some, than one of the other payment providers I mentioned. So they kind of grew virally. Some of those small companies have become quite large, um, but that's really hi- historically been their niche. The big enterprise company retailers haven't been using them, and the biggest retailers for sure wouldn't use them because they would just aggregate up all their 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 transactions. So it makes very little sense for Amazon to take a small percentage of their revenue, pull it out of their deal um, with a bank, uh, send it to Stripe, where they would almost certainly have to pay higher interchange fees. It just it just doesn't doesn't make sense unless there's something else going on like you you theorized. Yeah, and you just jog something for me. One of Stripe's um, biggest benefits in their APIs is not only are they good at charging cards, but they're good at disbursements. Um, and that ends up being something you need if you're going to be a marketplace. So uh, Airbnb is a large customer of theirs. And so you know, imagine you rented your apartment out. You would uh, want to collect from the renter, and then you would want to receive payment. Um, and that disbursement part is, is kind of tricky because you, as the person receiving the disbursement, you may want it through an AC or on a credit card or who knows, PayPal or something. So then that makes me think um, the newest marketplace at Amazon is Amazon Home Services, where uh, they are doing a lot of these you know, installations and those kinds of things where they're collecting on one end and dispersing on the back end. So that that's like another option I can think of is um, Stripe could be the disbursement platform for that. Yeah, yeah, that's totally possible. So that that is going to be interesting to watch. Cool. And uh, non-Amazon news, just a couple of quick ones. Um, uh, Stitch Fix has been widely reported to be close to filing an IPO, and then they actually have uh, apparently filed a confidential IPO. And the way this works is there was a Jobs Act, and before the Jobs Act, you would uh, – I'm intimately familiar with this process – you would uh, – you would have to file your S1, and then you would essentially put everything you're doing out there in the public. So uh, as you go back and forth with the SEC, your documents are out there for everyone to see. And you know maybe the market goes through a rough period and you want to pull the IPO. You've already kind of revealed all of your deepest, darkest secrets. So what the Jobs Act did is it allowed for companies with a under billion dollars of revenue to file confidentially. So you get a period of time where you can file, and you don't even have to tell anyone you have. Uh, it seems like they've chosen to tell people they filed. Um, but it gives you this kind of air cover where you can work with SEC. You can um, you can even kind of update the documents over a quarter or two and uh, essentially get ready for an IPO and then do the timing um, 
you know, to whatever works best for you, kind of see how the market rolls out and alleviates kind of a lot of the risk and stress of the IPO process. Um, so a lot of theories out there of why they're doing it now. And I do think if we kind of do the math, uh, they were reported to be at like a $800 million run rate. And I bet they were getting pretty close uh, to the billion dollar run rate and you lose the ability to do this. So you also see this kind of decision point kind of at that billion dollar run rate of, you know, gosh, we need to kind of, if we're going to do this confidentially, we kind of have to do it now. Um, so I think I think that's going to be really interesting to watch when they do take the covers off that S1. We'll report on it because uh, a lot of people are very curious about what's going on under the hood there. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that potential risk that they go over the threshold. That's that's super interesting. Uh, the other uh, news tidbit I had was uh, an announcement from Walmart and JD in China. And for those that don't know, JD is the largest uh direct seller e-commerce site in China. So, you know, we always talk about Alibaba, which is Tmall and Taobao. Those are both marketplaces. So JD.com is the largest kind of traditional uh, reseller of other people's stuff online. And they have announced a pretty uh, interesting partnership with Walmart to host a shopping festival, which uh, here in the U.S. we'd call a uh, a sale holiday um, on uh, August eighth next year. So that's that's going to be an interesting um, new play from uh, Walmart and JD in China to try to create their own shopping holiday to compete with Alibaba's single day on November eleventh. Yeah, very cool. It'll be interesting to see if they're going to call it like All Eights Day or Double Eights or uh, you know, yeah. seems kind of you can't call it Singles Day. No, but I suspect we're going to have a, a, a podcast to cover it next year. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned up front, uh, we did we did uh, listener questions last week, which were great and very popular. Uh, but we didn't get time to answer all the listeners' questions. Uh, so it is once again time for... Listener questions. Love the echo. Did you? Uh, you must have done that one at the Grand Canyon. Exactly. I, I feel like if that sound effect was a little shorter, we would have had time to get all the questions in last week. <laughs> I never know if it's ever going to totally stop. Uh, our first question this week comes from a longtime friend of the show, Michelle Grant. She's at Euromonitor, uh, and this one was from Twitter. And her question, do you think Nike is one of the few brands that have the leverage to get Amazon to remove 3P inventory? Uh, and uh, that's what they're calling uh, marketplace gating. So what do you think, Jason? Yes, I do think they're one of the few. Um, I think it's a combination of things, right? Like, I think I think you have to be a big, desirable brand. And I think in, in Nike's case, the leverage they had is that they were not selling on the brand. And they're one of the, the most requested products on Amazon that Amazon, you know, didn't carry except through, through uh, you know, 3P sellers. And so um, I... Like I, I do think that was interesting that they had the leverage to to clean up the 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 marketplace uh, by by agreeing to sell some products direct. I it wouldn't surprise me if uh, we see a couple more of those deals, but I certainly don't think they're going to be commonplace. I, I certainly think uh, in general Amazon's not going to be willing to do that. And you know, frankly, as they knock down a couple of these top top brands they want, they're just going to have less less. Uh, Future brands are going to have less uh, leverage to cut the same deal that Nike cut. 
Yeah, I agree. I think there's literally you know five to ten brands that that could get this kind of treatment. Uh, the thing that's going to be really interesting is uh, how will this relationship work? So you know, you you could paint a scenario where. Nike went into this genuinely wanting to sell more product and clean up the marketplace. Or you could say, well, maybe this was kind of a little bit of a head fake. And they're like, okay, Amazon, we'll sell some of our, and Nike has a good, better, best kind of thing. We'll, we'll sell some of our good and a little bit of better, but none of our best. And you're going to clean up the marketplace. Uh, and then, you know, the other part we're not privy to is what is the pricing relationship? So Amazon hates it when they can't change the price of a product. They will they will live up to map pricing, but if they see it cheaper somewhere else, they really like the flexibility to lower price. So you could see this relationship getting a little twisted if uh, a couple scenarios. So so let's say Nike has somehow negotiated Amazon can't do that, and that's going to drive Amazon crazy not being able to lower the price. So that's one scenario where this relationship sours. Another scenario is where um, you know uh, Amazon goes and changes the prices a lot. Maybe Nike came in thinking, oh, we've got our pricing under control. That's not a big deal. Fine, change prices if you find it lower. And Amazon's so good at that that I think it may surprise. It, in, in my experience, every other brand I deal with, they're very surprised that you know a Amazon's so aggressive with pricing, and then b when they call them on it, Amazon can provide like a detailed report that says, "Here's why we lowered the price. It was you had it at you know in Iowa. There was this store that had it you know with a uh, and it wasn't even cheaper per se, but it came with a gift card, and that's why we knocked ten bucks off across." the country. <laughs> so, so I think that could cause some friction. Um, and then the other one is, you know, Amazon is foregoing some, a lot of revenue and a lot of margin. And maybe a year into this, it turns out that uh, 3P was more profitable than Nike. I, I don't know what the outcome of that would be, but you know, I, I got to imagine Amazon has some data there. So um, it's kind of interesting to see how this relationship is going to play out over time. I, I think I see more scenarios where uh, it kind of sours and then they kind of split up and then, you know, maybe come back together later. Or, um, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, no, I, I think you're exactly right. And the, the 3P marketplace is such an important part of Amazon's success it just it seems like you know there has to be a really compelling reason for them to do something um, that that negatively affects that. Uh, so the next question we got is from Steve White, and uh, uh, Steve is a coworker of mine on the the commerce team at Sapient Razorfish. So I know Steve very well, uh, and he he sent the question: uh, Hey guys, when I talk to brands, they have a sense that they are going to be pushed out of the platform as Amazon develops products in their respective categories. Uh, and then he goes on to say, my sense is that Amazon has never acted like a bully in that regard, uh, just adds additional competition thoughts. So Scott, is uh, are they going to kick off all the shoe companies now that they have private label shoes? No, no. I think, you know, they, Amazon loves uh, a couple things. So they love uh, fast free shipping. They love Amazon Prime and the the kind of loyalty it builds and trust. Uh, the things they love on top of that are selection and value. So there's this classic Amazon flywheel. Um, uh, it, it's kind of funny. I've been talking about this for 10 years. Now everyone shows the flywheel. Uh, and, and at the heart of the flywheel is selection and value. And that's, that's where, um, you know, they don't really push brands off. So, so I think, what I'm seeing is this really interesting kind of, you know, hat trick where you'll have a name brand uh, out there. Um, so let's say, 
I don't know. Um, I was buying something the other day. I was buying some shorts. So Columbia shorts were out there and they were like $80, you know, maybe $60 for last year's kind of thing. Um, that was the name brand men's shorts. Uh, and then there was an Amazon, uh, brand in there. And then there was a Chinese brand. So, so I think they, they like giving consumers that option to say, Hey, Here's here's a wide price range of things you decide, um, and they're all prime eligible. And you decide what you like. Do you want us to have a kind of put our brand on something and call it the Amazon Choice and the private label? Do you want to take a little bit more risk uh, on quality and whatnot with a Chinese kind of unbranded seller, or do you want to buy from the name brand name brand that has you know it's more expensive and you're going to get you know um, better fabrics and you know better this that and the other with that one. So so I, I think. I think that uh, brands shouldn't worry about that. Now, what they should worry about, though, is the slice of the pie, because even though they're still on there, um, you know, we, we, there's, there's, there's lots of case studies that we see every day of these traditional brands. They don't really pay attention to their Amazon business, and an entrepreneurial brand comes in and soaks up like 80% of the Amazon market overnight. And that's hard to fight against, even if you're a name brand, because just the way the Amazon machine works with SEO and sales rank and the ad system and FBA and all that, it can be very hard for a traditional brand that they have to make some really fast big decisions that big brands are not good at making to catch up to that. So, so I think the risk is actually that they lose a slice of the pie and that's the entire Amazon pie, which is the a very big pie. Yeah, no, I, uh, once again, I, I totally agree. Um, I think the, there's very few things you're going to do to get kicked off the Amazon platform. I mean, you know, violating terms and conditions, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, fake products, stuff like that, uh, or selling stuff that Amazon can't make a profit on, you know, if, you know, you can fall into that crap category and get kicked off the product, uh, the platform. Um, but it certainly is unlikely they're going to kick you off the platform to preference their own brands. Um, to your point, like it, it can be harder to win the buy box when Amazon has products, but I don't even think that they, um, are manually putting their their finger on the scales in most cases for those private brands. I think they just know how to to score better and rank better, and they're and um and so as a result, they're going to win the buy box more, um and you know and win those search results more, um and therefore, as you say, get get a bigger piece of the pie. Um, I would say the the one place where it, like this still isn't getting kicked off, but where it probably feels like it's getting kicked off is, you know, something like the echo is getting like so heavily promoted around holidays, like prime day and, and Christmas. And, you know, it, you know, it could be pretty hard to, to elevate visibility for your competitive product. You know, if you're competing against one of those, those core Amazon products, but I, I don't think we're going to see that for all the private labels on Amazon. Yeah, and here is our last question. This is from Parker Block. Um, and this one requires a little bit of setup. So uh, there were two articles recently out there. Uh, another friend of the show who has been a guest, Casey Loba, he had an article out talking about kind of the fragmentation of retail. So lots of little stores selling things and brands going direct. So lots, you know, this big kind of, you know, tons of choices for consumers. Um, at the same time, uh, a popular writer, Deb Weinswig, she used to be an analyst at City, uh, and now she writes for Fung Retail. Um, uh, 
she wrote an article that said, no, there's all these disruptive forces going on in retail and we're going to see massive, uh, you know, consolidation. So essentially you're going to go from, you know, I don't know how many retailers, but if you look at kind of Mulligan and you start tracking the number and they, they've been very good at, at, at tracking the number of store closures and then projected store closures and all that, um, it's pretty easy to convince yourself there's going to be Walmart, Target, and, you know, an apparel company and, uh, or two or three and a couple luxury ones, some dollar stores, some clubs, and then that's kind of it. So a lot of the retail is going to go away and we've seen, you know, more bankruptcies this year than we've had ever. So, okay. So that's a long setup. So the question is, uh, and I'll uh, let you tackle this one, Jason, uh, are disruptive forces going to drive retail consolidation, which is Deb's argument, or are we going to have fragmentation, which is Casey? Those seem to be mutually exclusive outcomes. So I'll I'll uh, turn it over to you, Jason, to hear your thoughts. That's very very clever. I was actually hoping to hear your answer, and then I was going to tell you whether you were right or not. Um, but uh, uh, while they seem to be mutually exclusive, I actually think they're not. Um, and so I think the answer is both. Um, but I'll I'll uh, be a little more definitive in what I mean by that. Uh, the I feel like we're going to definitely see a consolidation of people that are uh, aggregating other people's stuff and selling it. Um, so traditional retailers that buy stuff from third parties, mark it up and sell it. Uh, I just think that's going to uh, increasingly be a hard business to uh, be in and differentiate yourself in. Um, and we're, we're likely to only see a handful of those product aggregators. And, you know, obviously at this point, the, the, the one that, that certainly seems to be winning is, uh, in North America is our friends at Amazon. Um, but at the same time, the, we're, we're seeing a lot of product manufacturers uh, have lower barriers to entry to sell direct to consumer than ever before. I mean, 50 years ago, if you invented a product, the only way you could get it to consumers was to get it on the shelf at retail. Um, and today it's, it's much easier to sell that stuff direct to consumer. Um, and increasingly, you, you would want to, both from a margin standpoint and from a customer intimacy standpoint and from a data standpoint – um, and you have to because that's the only way you can control your price and differentiate yourself and, you know, not not just be, you know, in a sea of 400 million products on Amazon. And so uh, I think what we're going to actually see is a fragmentation in sellers in the form of product manufacturers that are selling their products direct. And we're going to see a consolidation of sellers in the form of aggregators that sell other people's stuff. So, so Casey, Deborah, you're both right. Uh, you unpacked the mutually exclusive uh, argument very well. Uh, the I'll be a little controversial and disagree with you to some extent. So I'm going to go consolidation, and um, I'll put a little star by that. So let me come back to that in a second. But let, let me address fragmentation. I, I do think it is interesting. We talk a lot on the show about the digitally native vertical brands. But what's interesting, if, if we kind of look at it, um, they haven't scaled as big as you would think they would, right? So, so let's let's pick on Bonobos. Uh, they've been on the show, great brand, love them, uh, love Andy's writing and all that stuff. But they sold to Walmart. Um, you know, they didn't create kind of a five billion dollar brand, um, and I don't think they ever disclosed sales. But I think they sold for three hundred. So if we give them kind of a one x sales, or uh, maybe that was two, so that puts them between one hundred and fifty and three hundred million. 
um, you would think with the vast audience online that they would have been able to um, just keep selling and scaling online without having to open stores, but they ultimately had to open stores to get consumer awareness. So, um, so I think there will be brands willing to sell direct, but it's going to be hard because it's very it's a weird customer experience to not have them aggregated in some way, uh, and that's what traditional retailers have provided. Now back to my consolidation. I think we're going to have consolidation, but I put a little asterisk by it because I think the consolidators are going to be different than what we think they are. They'll be the traditional folks like an Amazon, a Walmart, kind of a department store kind of thing. But I think what will happen is as these brands want to get consumers, the consolidation points will be where your attention is. And um, China is a really good example of this where um, you know you have uh, WeChat has become itself, it started out as an app app for chatting, it has become this portal or channel now that people shop through. So the app has become kind of the, the, you know, the web essentially. So it has the entire web inside of an app and that's a, a form of consolidation. So if we kind of project that forward in the U.S., I think what you'll have is you'll have some traditional retail points of consolidation, but I think actually what will be bigger is going to be, um, you know, some of the platform consolidation. So I think you actually will have a fair amount of sales going through Facebook. It's hard, you know, and I put Facebook, I put Insta and all that stuff inside of there. Uh, and then also when you look at people, where people are spending their time, things like Snapchat, Google, um, and then maybe even at the device layer, maybe an Apple or, um, you know, uh, is kind of another kind of consolidation point. So that's how these brands are going to have to be able to get in front of consumers because they just can't do it through traditional channels. Um, and I, I you know, it, Part of my thinking on all this is that we go to a much higher percent of sales that are online, and that's kind of what's happened in China as well to drive that behavior. So, so I think consolidation, but not just retail consolidation, but you know, um, attention consolidation, which may be a retail um, thing like Amazon, but it could also be Facebook, uh, Twitter, and yes, those those guys have tried all this, but I think it comes back around in some form, and that's the platform for discovery uh, and you're if you're not playing on those you're you won't be found on the internet that's very interesting i uh i will totally buy that um uh, again despite the fact that most of those platforms have had very little success today i i certainly agree that it's going to be easier and easier to push the the transaction out to the point of discovery so if if there are you know new points of discovery they could act absolutely be consolidation points um, so that that's a great call out, Scott. I'm going to slightly clarify my answer when I said uh, brand selling direct are going to, you know, therefore be a bunch of fragmented sellers. I suspect the overwhelming majority of those brands still will sell with the aggregators. So I don't mean they'll exclusively sell direct, um, but I, I think they'll they'll certainly, you know, do their best to earn as much of the direct business as they can. And, you know, particularly if you look at it through Scott's timeline, um, the other thing that's going to happen is a lot of the buyers for this stuff are going to be computer chips or algorithms that are doing auto replenishment in your home. And, you know, the the Samsung dishwasher is not going to care whether it buys your Tide from Amazon or direct from Procter & Gamble. And so, you know, I think that's going to create a greater opportunity for, for those direct sellers in a bunch of those categories to have a meaningful direct business. Uh, so I, with that said, I have a follow-up question for you. Is a marketplace consolidation or fragmentation, right? So on Amazon where I've got, you know, uh, a huge number of sellers but a single cart, is that actually 
fragmentation of sellers or consolidation of carts? I think it's consolidation because, you know, I think the traditional way of thinking about uh, consolidation is front doors. So that's kind of the approach I'm taking is like, you're going to, you know, how many, if we use an offline metaphor, how many physical front doors do you end up going through? Um, that number will drop offline and offline, I think. Um, now, if you're counting the fragmentation as the number of buying entities or, you know, sellers of record behind the front door, um, you know, I think that's kind of a nuanced <laughs> kind sure. of view of it. But I, I see where you're going with it. But yeah, so I think it's the front door. Okay. That's kind of how I, I'm, I'm answering the question. Cool. Uh, well, Scott, we, we made it. We got all the way through our listener questions, um, and that is perfect because it has happened again. We've wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners' time. Uh, so we certainly would encourage listeners to continue the dialogue on our Facebook page. If you love this episode, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. Um, and feel free to use Twitter or Facebook to uh, send us new questions, and we'll we'll aggregate a bunch of them and do another listener uh, question show in the future. Yeah, thanks, everyone, for all the questions. We really appreciate it. And so until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.